What do Google spreadsheets and vegan pizza have in common? It's divorce. Our top priority was preserving what we wanted to keep in our relationship above all else and preserving really the future friendship that we were trying to build. And so all the decisions that we made were through that lens. That's Nicole. Her and her ex-spouse sat down with homemade vegan pizza while mapping out how they were going to divide their assets on a Google spreadsheet. Perhaps a bit in common, but their breakup was very amicable, as you just heard, and both were able to maintain their closeness without letting money get in the way. That's not to say there weren't complications. Paperwork sucks in <laughs> divorce. Well, that's no exception. Plus, Nicole had to find somewhere to live since her ex kept the house. So where did she move to? And how did they sort through all the messy paperwork? Welcome to Beyond the Dollar with me, Sarah Lee Kane, where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. Nicole Antoinette, host of Real Talk Radio, comes on the show to talk about her experience going through the uncoupling process. We go over why navigating paperwork was fairly messy, even though what they went through was what Nicole calls the easy version of divorce. Stick around to the end where I'm going to distill some takeaways, including what you can do now, even if you're already married, to protect your assets in case of a divorce. And spoiler alert, part of navigating through such a big transition is getting clear on your values. You know, what's truly important to you. I've helped thousands of folks through this process on honing in on what matters and how it can guide you in your financial life and beyond. To grab the free guide, head over to beyondthedollar.co slash values. To find resources we shared in this episode, head over to beyondthedollar.co. All right, get ready, grab a seat, and let's go beyond the dollar. Nicole, I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar. I'm excited too. It's always fun to do like a little podcast trade almost. It was so good to have you on my show. And now I'm like, oh, we get to talk again. And it's, I don't know, it's like a really nice kind of deepening of getting to talk to someone in a couple of different formats. Yes. And I'll make sure everyone to link to that episode in the show notes. So let's start off with your decision to uncouple. So I'm assuming it was a mutual decision. It was, yes. Okay. So both of you made the decision. Was money one of the first discussions you had or what were some of the things you had talked about if it wasn't? That is a good question. I'm excited to have this conversation with you because this, like I've sort of been interviewed about kind of divorce and coupling like lightly in a couple of other places, specifically because I think our situation was maybe not the norm in that it was such a mutual thing and that we're still essentially chosen family and incredibly close friends and are building like family 2.0, right? Like sort of just like a new version and a relationship transition. And people have been really curious about the like emotional side of it. And I don't know that I've ever been asked about more of the logistics. So it's always neat to get to talk about something from a different angle. Money wasn't relevant in our conversations in terms of deciding that's what we were going to do, right? Of the, are we going to stay married? Are we not going to stay married? Those conversations didn't include money. That wasn't really a part of it for us. Once we decided for sure, okay, we're going to make this transition you know, to basically just a friendship and uncouple and get divorced. Then we started talking about what the logistics were going to look like. And at that point, yeah, money was one of the first things that we talked about. So were both of you open to talking about money during your marriage? So was, I mean, was that process of the logistical uncoupling of your finances fairly smooth? So I love talking about money. That has always been the case for me. And so yes, it's definitely something that we talked about really openly. 
I love budgeting. I love this kind of like the nitty gritty details of personal finance, and he does not at all. And so, you know, once we combined our finances, which was what we did when we got married, of course, you know, that's certainly not what everybody does. Once we combined our finances, you know, we would have monthly ish kind of financial meetings and we would talk about like big or important things. But on a day-to-day basis, like he was very joyful for me to be in charge of all of that. And I was very joyful to be able to make as many spreadsheets as I wanted. (laughs) So we certainly talked about it and had common language around it. But as far as like the day-to-day of money, it was definitely more my thing. And when we sat down to start talking about money and talking about logistics, one of the things that we started with or one of the things that I started with in that conversation throughout the five years that we were married, he earned significantly more money than I did. And particularly in kind of the middle few years while I was building up my business and kind of transitioning from a previous business. And he was very supportive financially and, you know, otherwise during that time. And so one of the first suggestions that I made was that we split everything 70-30 instead of 50-50. We live in Oregon. I'm not actually sure even what the legal like split is if it's kind of a 50-50 thing like I think California is, honestly, because we were just doing everything ourselves and everything was really mutual and, you know, really loving and amicable. We didn't really get into any of that. We were just going based on, you know, our top priority was preserving what we wanted to keep in our relationship above all else and preserving really the future friendship that we were trying to build. And so all the decisions that we made were through that lens. And it didn't feel, you know, whether I was legally, you know, entitled to split everything in half or not, that just didn't feel right to me. And so I proposed, you know, that we did a 70-30 split with him keeping 70% and me keeping 30%. And that felt really good to him as well. And so that was really where we started. And one of the things that I think isn't completely unique to my situation, but I've had a lot of conversations with folks who are either kind of going through a separation process or have gone through a divorce or the sort of messiness of it can be a very large spectrum, right? I've heard horror stories from people of what their divorces have been like. I've heard stories that are kind of similar to mine and then everything like all in between. And one of the things that I just come back to over and over again is like, we just got really lucky. I mean, sure, we had good communication and you know worked really hard to have this be a very smooth process. But I am very empathetic to the fact that that is not the case for everyone and that a lot of it was just luck that we wanted the same things at the same time. We don't have kids. So, you know, there wasn't as much logistical stuff, but, and I'm sure, you know, we're going to talk about some more of the logistics, but I will tell you, Sarah, that even with as great, like we had potentially the best divorce of all time, like emotionally, which doesn't mean that it wasn't still hard. Of course it was. And there was a lot of grief, but it was still such a logistical nightmare because of how we had intertwined our lives. And like every three days during this process, I feel like we looked at each other and we're like, thank God that we are in a good place. Because I I can't even, I mean, my heart goes out to people who this hasn't been their situation and just how messy it can be if you're really fighting with a person or you aren't on the same page. And So a lot of what made ours smooth, honestly, was luck. I do want to point out, yes, the common narrative that you read out there, and I'm just going to generalize, is the more negative side of it in terms of it's emotionally heart-wrenching for couples that are getting divorced, and then there's fighting over assets and things like that, even worse if, if there's children involved. It's nice to hear that both of you were on the same page. It just sounds like maybe you had very similar values and just came to an agreement that way. So yeah, luck does play into it in terms of 
both of you agreed on what you had proposed and all of that. But you're right, there's still logistical nightmares. And I know that if divorce were ever to happen in my life, I feel the same way that, oh my gosh, how are we going to divide all our assets and, and things like that? So walk us through maybe one of the more challenging aspects of uncoupling your finances. Well, the scariest part for me was health insurance. He has a corporate job and that was the first time in my adult life that I've had really great health insurance, which, you know, that could be a whole other conversation of how that shouldn't be the case. (laughs) But that was the part that I was the most concerned about, partially because it was unknown. I didn't, you know, laws had changed, you know, in the period of time that we had gotten divorced and I didn't even really know what my options were going to be. And then of those options, I had no idea what I was going to be able to afford and what that was going to look like. And I feel like it could be a full-time job for someone trying to understand their own, you know, insurance policy. Right? It's like needlessly really complicated. And so that going into it that was my biggest logistical fear. What we actually wound up doing to kind of answer your question to start the process, once we emotionally had decided, okay, like this is what's happening, you know, we let it sit for a little while and then when we decided to get serious about what it looked like logistically, I tell friends this story and they kind of laugh about it, but he makes incredibly good vegan pizza. That's something that, you know, Friday night was pizza night. And so there was a Friday night where he was, you know, making pizza dough and doing that. And I was sitting on a essentially like a bar stool on the other side of the counter with my laptop open. And we were like, okay, let's just like start doing this. So he's making pizza. I have a Google Doc spreadsheet up. And our first step was to just go through and mostly off the top of our heads and sort of with our like Vanguard accounts pulled up, just see what are all of our assets. Let's just get that in one place. And then let's percentage wise look at like what a 70-30 split would be. And so it was funny that I mean, we did this whole thing in under an hour, basically, the deciding of it, not the actual filling out the mountains of paperwork right, that this kind of stuff can require. That took quite a bit of time. But you know, we really sat down and our decision was that he was going to keep the house. And so it was, okay, what do we think approximately, you know, the value of the house is right now? What's the mortgage? How much do we have in like a joint investment accounts? So we decided also off the bat that our individual retirement accounts, his 401k and IRA, my traditional and Roth IRAs and SEP IRAs, like we weren't even going to count that. Like everyone just keeps their own, that kind of stuff. It didn't enter into the equation. So we really just went through our joint stuff. We talked through like a very light estimate of what we thought our shared belongings were worth, furniture, that kind of stuff, because he was like mostly keeping all of that. And, you know, it was a really simple spreadsheet. I think it had, I don't know, 10 or 12 lines. And we put a value number next to everything and said, okay, like this is what our total net worth is. You know, this is the mortgage, right? Like getting to our final number and then saying, okay, 70% of it, if he's taking the house, that means I'm taking more cash essentially, right? Or like more shares of our shared investments. And that's how we worked it out. And then it was from there, just like filling out the paperwork to actually make that happen. Wow. You weren't kidding when you said it was like the best divorce ever. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny. This is like such an interesting thing to talk about. And one of the reasons that I'm open to talking about it is because had I had even one example of folks who had gone through an uncoupling, like people that I knew personally who had gone about it the way that he and I did, I think that would have been really comforting for me. And since I have started to speak about it more publicly, you know, I've written about it and stuff, obviously maintaining privacy and and all of that as well. But I've received some really interesting notes from people who either went through something similar or, or who were trying to go through something similar and are like, man, there are no stories of this out there. And obviously, like you could do 10 different episodes with 10 different people who have gotten divorced and all of the stories could be wildly different, right? As far as how these things are handled. So mine's like, obviously, I can only speak about my story. But for us, it was it was pretty simple because we both wanted the same thing at the same time. 
I am curious about your mortgage, if you care to share. I, I'm assuming that you're, you both had your names on it. So when both of you decided to split, like how did that work? So what we tried to do is take my name off of it, right? Like, and that was what we had initially agreed on, right? When we filed the divorce paperwork, they give you a chance, you know, if, if it's this kind of thing where nothing's being contested and you meet certain criteria, right? Like not having kids, not, I, I think in Oregon, it's not having assets over a certain amount. I don't remember exactly what the details were, but we qualified for essentially like the easy version, right? The like fill out the stack of paperwork, pay you know, whatever amount you have to pay, and then you're done. And so in that you have the opportunity to like list out assets just to say that like, hey, the judge approved this, right? So when we did that, we like made a note that, you know, he was keeping the house. And then we went through the process of trying to get me removed from the mortgage. And it was basically impossible. We like fill out all the paperwork, sent it in, and they didn't do anything with it, tried to get them on the phone, couldn't. And we were dealing with so many other logistics at the time. And also, you know, I will say even for something that was as mutual as this was, we were both like totally heartbroken, right? Like this, I don't think anyone gets married thinking, you know what I'm going to do in five years, right? Like I'm going to go through all of this. And so we were both really sad and dealing with transition and I was moving out and there was just so much other stress that when the getting my name off the mortgage became something that was like extra work, I think we were both just like, you know, fuck it. And so as of right now, I'm still technically on the mortgage and we're both fine with that. You know, we've had follow-up conversations of like if I was going to buy another property or if somehow it was going to affect me negatively, but he trusts that I'm not going to go after his house and I trust that he's going to keep paying this mortgage. And so we both were just like, eh, whatever, it's fine. And that again was specific to our situation. But yes, it was difficult. I think if we would have made more of an effort and maybe we will do that in the future now that kind of the the hard part emotionally of the uncoupling has passed, you know, and now we're in this like really great place of just this super close friendship. I think we might revisit it. But also, to be honest with you, it's been kind of nice because when I moved out of the house, I moved into a, you know, a small van that I had converted, which I know you want to talk about. I'm still using that address as like my mailing address, my permanent address on all my things. So I didn't have to change my license or change, you know, all of that is like a whole other avenue of paperwork. And since I don't have another permanent address and we're still on technically on the same car insurance account, we just, you know, we're getting better deals doing it together. I have rental insurance that like covers the things that are in my van that runs through the homeowner's insurance that because I'm still technically, right? Like it still is technically my house. It's made some of those logistics easier. But again, those are things that are specific to our situation. Right. And that's a great segue into the the van, the decision to explore van life. So walk us through that decision. Like, was it a financial reason? Was it more, I'm just really interested in exploring this? Yeah. So it's something that I had been interested in for a while in working for myself. One of the things that I really value is flexibility and freedom, sometimes at the expense of more financial stability, right? And that is something that I have chosen basically my entire adult life in different capacities, whether it was self-employment or, you know, kind of seasonal employment or piecing together a bunch of different things. I have never had, I guess, what people would call a traditional job. Part of what appeals to me about that is the ability to not have to be in one place all the time. And so I had had some friends who had either done full-time or part-time van life or had experimented with some different types of living situations that I thought, hey, potentially this could be a good fit for me. And then once it became really clear that we were going to uncouple and at that point, I was really faced with a decision of what do I want to do about my living situation, which of course means what do I want to do about my business? Because I 
had been doing, you know, my current business since like 2015 and, you know, previous iterations of it before that. And I love what I do. And it certainly does not make a huge amount of money by any means. And so once I started crunching the numbers, and if I didn't want to touch my savings, which was mostly my goal after the divorce, that I had to either have a really lower my expenses quite a bit, or get a different job, or at least like a second job, right? If I wanted to essentially move out of that house and get an apartment or do something else and, you know, furnish it and all of that and not deplete my savings, then I would have had to change my work situation. And that wasn't what I wanted to do. I love my work and really believe in this business and have some like cool growth plans for it. And so I said, okay, what would let me really decrease my expenses and, you know, give it a shot. And that was kind of where the van life thing came into play. It was something that I was interested in just because I thought that it would be fun. Even as I was you know, converting the van and, and planning to do that, I was very clear that it wouldn't be forever. I don't think anything has to be forever, but it was a really good stopgap for me to know that I wouldn't have rent, that I wouldn't have a mortgage payment. And going back to the, the conversation while making pizza at the counter of our finances, one of the things that we worked into that plan was buying a van for me. So we had two cars, we traded in one of them and paid the difference in cash for my van. It was really important for him to feel like, oh, okay, I have a place that I'm going to live. And it was really important to me to not be making continual payments on that. So I'm really grateful that we agreed to pull the cash out of savings essentially to buy the van. But yeah, I think it was mostly a financial decision for sure. Can you give us a picture of maybe the cost of the van, maybe converting it, and even some of the expenses that you are they're paying now? Sure. So, like anything else, right? Like home ownership, you know, if if you were to say to someone, "How much does a house cost?" Right? Like that completely depends on how big it is and where you're buying and all those things. So, you know, it would have been possible for me to buy a like much older van that probably needed some work that had like 100,000 miles on it, right? Like on Craigslist or something, probably for like, you know, three or $4,000. I know other people who have done something similar. For me, my, since I don't have those like fix up a vehicle skills, it was really important to me to have something that was used, but a lot newer that had fewer than 50,000 miles, you know, and a really great record. And so obviously that kind of bumped up the price and bumped up the price. I wanted something also that was going to be quite fuel efficient. A lot of the larger vans while they get, you know, like sprinter vans and stuff, while they give you a lot more living space, I knew that I was going to be on the road a ton this year. I wound up driving, you know, all the way across country twice and then kind of halfway across the country and back another time. And so I knew that 2019 was going to be a year of a lot of travel for me on the road. And so I wanted something that was going to be fuel efficient and reliable and easy to drive. And so I wound up getting a Ford Transit Connect, which is very small. People who have seen pictures of it on my Instagram and then see it in person are like, oh, this is way tinier than I thought that it was going to be. So it's very small. It's 20 square feet of living space. It's a 2016. And when I got it, I think it had about 21, 22,000 miles on it, which was like really awesome. That's what I was looking for. So I think I think it was about 17,000 and then trading in the car took about 4 or 5,000 off that. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but yeah, I think we paid about 14,000 in cash for it. And then the build out, I also do not have those skills. I had never used any kind of power tools or anything before doing this project. Luckily, you know, my former spouse and some other friends do have these skills and were very generous with their time in helping me get this van built out. 
especially because I was on sort of a time crunch, right? It wasn't a great learning project for me because I didn't have endless time to make mistakes, essentially. But I definitely learned some stuff, you know, contributed where I could and was like basically everyone's assistant as like they built me this van, which was like pretty incredible. I'm very grateful to the folks who did that. Build out... The most expensive part of the build out was the solar setup. So I have two each 100 watt solar panels and like an awesome battery setup and electrical lights inside a fridge, that kind of thing, so that I can be completely off grid for days and still run my computer and all of that kind of stuff and charge it. And so that was the part that I outsourced essentially, like that I took it to a place that specializes in that type of thing. Because again, on the time frame that I was on, I just couldn't deal with learning electrical stuff myself. There's great tutorials and stuff out there. I just didn't do it. And I, that was the most expensive part of it for sure. I think all in, I would have to look at my spreadsheet, but I think it was around $4,000 to do the conversion. And at least half of it was that kind of solar setup. So I absolutely could have done it for cheaper, especially if I really did everything myself, if I took more time, if I didn't buy a fancy fridge, if I didn't have kind of the solar setup, but really what I wanted especially because I was doing it at a time where there were cash reserves, right? Like we set aside a budget for this, like here's the budget to buy the van, here's the budget to build build it out. And I felt and still feel really confident that if I either decide to get a larger van or if I decide, you know, to get rid of this van, that I will be able to sell it for a good price. People are always looking for already converted vans like this as far as I've seen. So I feel pretty confident that if that's something that I want to do, that I'll be able to sell it. You mentioned that you were on a time crunch. Was it because you needed to move out of your former home at a certain time? What was the reason for that? Yeah, mostly. I mean, we were kind of in the the of the mindset of we don't want to rush things, but we also don't want to drag it out, right? And and so some of the time crunch was also based around like when the people who were helping me, like the main person who was helping me, traveled in from it, like lives across the country, and so it was sort of based around his schedule too, like when he could fly out, and it was like a week here, a week there. So it was like okay, we have one week to get as much done as possible, and I wanted it to be like really fully livable. When I moved out, I actually left on a backpacking trip. I do a decent amount of long distance hiking. And so I moved out and then went and did a 700 mile hike and knew that when I came back, I would need to move into the van right away to start essentially the cross country road trip that I was doing for the retreats that I was hosting for my business. And so yeah, kind of backing up from that timeline, I realized like, okay, I only have you know a month or so to really get this done. Gotcha. So let's talk about the first time you slept in the van. I'm assuming the divorce was final. You've kind of uncoupled most of your assets with the exception of the mortgage and, and all of that. Like, what were you feeling as soon as you climbed into bed? Yeah, it was sort of surreal. If you have never slept in like a tiny little 20 square foot, essentially like feels like like a tiny little cabin or something. And I wound up buying a twin size mattress that I had to cut down both lengthwise and widthwise to fit <laughs> what I was doing. So it was like a really tiny little living space. And as people who know me or know my work will already know, I have a long history of insomnia of different kinds. I've had, unfortunately, like a lot of sleep struggles. So the first night I didn't really sleep that much, if I'm being honest. And part of that was just because of the newness. You know, I have trouble sleeping in a new place, whether it's like you know, staying with family or staying in a hotel, like a new place always takes me a while to adjust to. And the fact that I was like, okay, this is this like tiny sleeping pod, you know, where I now live, I think it felt slightly overwhelming and then also really exciting. I mentioned before being really into long distance hiking and my favorite or one of my favorite parts of that is the simplicity, right? The only things that you have are the things that you have on your back. There's no 
what do I want to wear today decision because you only have one outfit and you know the essentially you wake up and it's you know walk from point A to point B don't die like that's your whole day and so part of what made me excited about living in a van was essentially like an offshoot version of that where it's such a small space that I really had to cull down my belongings and okay these are the things that I love the most or and or that are the most useful that I'm going to take with me and kind of going through that process and knowing like I have everything that I need in this van and you know am completely self-sufficient in it that felt really cool that's awesome I do want to circle back I know you split your assets 70 30 were there any concerns or fears or anxiety about the fact that you have less assets than before any concerns about the future in terms of earning money earning potential anything like that yeah i feel like this could be its own like multi-hour conversation for sure I have never been, I think, what would be considered a high earner. And part of that, you know, we could get into like the psychology of limiting money beliefs, right? Or anything like that. I think some of it is my own stuff, which I am sort of always continuing to work through. And some of it is just the choices that I made, like I said, of the types of employment and the things that I value above being a more high earner. It's actually one of the things that I am working on this year is sort of trying to like look at where am I holding myself back, right? And sort of like not assuming that just because you work for yourself or just because you're doing something non-traditional, like there's no say saying that that has to mean you don't earn very much money, right? Like I know plenty of people that work for themselves that are like quite financially abundant. And so part of it for me was having to pick apart like my fears were sort of based in that story of because of the type of work that I do, if I keep doing this work that I love, that means that money is always going to be somewhat of a struggle. Like that story was something that came up a lot for me during this process. And so obviously, right, like that's on me to work through. But sort of the flip side of that, if I'm being super honest, I had a difficult time with the combined finances in general in that it's like a weird thing to be like, this is and isn't my money. And again, that sort of goes back to like, you know, my own stuff, whether it's like family of origin stuff or whatever, you know, in our combined finances, I never felt like all this money that he was earning was my money. Like, yeah, I definitely had some fears and I still do, but I think that that's normal. I don't know that we ever get to a point where there's no, you know, money, fear or concern whatsoever. I feel better now after having done 2019 was a full year of complete self-employment, supporting myself for my business. Nothing melted to the ground. I didn't have to like deplete all of my savings. Like a lot of the sort of irrational things that I was afraid of didn't happen. And I think sometimes what really helps me get over fear is just time. Like if you see over and over again that the thing that the worst case scenario isn't happening, eventually I feel like I start to trust that. So I don't know that it was specifically because of the divorce. I actually think that getting divorced like forced me to really look at a lot of this kind of stuff and to really be more efficient with my business and just like figure out what that's going to look like going forward. And that to me feels exciting and empowering because it feels like taking control more. What would you say you're most excited about in the next couple of years in terms of something you want to achieve with your finances? Hmm. Well, I am pretty deep down the like personal finance, financial independence research rabbit hole right now. I will tell you, I'm very, I'm like devouring books and podcasts and, and like really interested in like sort of the lived experience of people who have done something that is not 
like maybe like the mainstream norm. That's really of interest to me. And one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot, and this, I guess, is sort of like an indirect answer to your question, but is like consciously trying to develop an attitude of time affluence, like really realizing that the main reason that I want this type of employment, you know, obviously aside from the fact that I genuinely really love and believe in this work, which is of course a gift. I know plenty of folks who don't feel that way about the work they do for money, but is really a lifestyle thing. And that I don't want to only have a couple weeks of vacation a year. I do want to be able to take, you know, a month off at a time and go on long hikes and like really looking at what I want is more time and time to lay in bed and read and do just like do the things that I enjoy. And so when I think about the next couple of years, as far as like financial goals, I think a lot of it for me is figuring out not necessarily like what my perfect life costs. Like I think that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily what I mean, but to just keep seeing, okay, like doing this non-traditional thing where like, you know, so right now I'm back in Bend, Oregon for the winter and it is too cold here to live in a tiny van in the winter. We get plenty of snow and I'm not interested in like <laughs> sleeping in a van in like, you know, 10 degree weather. And so I am renting a room in a friend's house for two and a half months. I just moved in last weekend um, as of the time of this recording. And it's been incredible, but obviously that's a lot more expensive than just living in the van. So over the next couple of years, I'm hoping that I can really feel into like, what does a, a year look like for me, right? If I spend two months hiking, you know, four months living in the van, three months, you know, renting here, do, right? Like, I, I just don't see myself like settling into one place all year round anytime soon, if ever. And so figuring out what does that look like? What does that cost? And then how to build the business and income streams that can support what I actually want and pay less attention to, you know, maybe how other people are doing things. Yeah. And I'm excited to see where that journey takes you. So Nicole, where can everyone find you and your podcast? Well, the show is called Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. So yeah, realtalkradiopodcast.com is the website and basically everything is, is linked from there. So if you just Google that or look at that, you know, people can find me. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Dollar. You are so welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nicole and got some insight that not all divorce stories are bad. Right? Now, I do want to talk about, I'm going to air quote this kind of insurance for your assets when you do intertwine your money with a spouse. So there's two things you can think about. One is a prenuptial and the second one is a postnuptial. So a prenuptial is kind of a contract or a document in which you talk with your future spouse about your current assets, your future assets, and sort of your your earnings and how you want to divide that in case of a divorce. And so it acts as insurance policy of sorts, again, air quote, because you never know if the divorce is going to be pretty smooth like what Nicole had or pretty messy like what other people have. And so you want to have this document in place where you've already worked out some of these issues so that when conversations get heated, you don't have to worry about, you know, all that, figuring all that stuff out. Now, if you're already married, you can do what's called a postnuptial. And this can be a fairly complicated and emotional conversation, but both of these types of documents are really on the premise that you care about each other enough to have these uncomfortable conversations at a time in the future, if it ever happens, that you cannot have them, right, without getting too emotional. So that's really what the idea of it is. If you're interested in 
the idea of a pre or post nuptial, I'll be happy to link some in the show notes. So beyond the dollar.co, I'll, I'll link to a couple of US, perhaps Canadian sort of centric articles. Another thing I want to talk about is Nicole's kind of maybe attitude, I guess you can say, towards the coupling and uncoupling of finances in that she never truly felt like what her ex had earned was really hers. It's a really interesting topic about whether you want to keep your finances separate or together. So I highly recommend if you want to listen to another episode of Beyond the Dollar, episode 28 with Bryn Conroy. She talks about why you may want to just keep your finances separate, even though you're in a relationship. If you do listen to that, just kind of heads up, you will hear a male voice. That is my friend, ex-co-host Garrett. Last thing I do want to cover is the idea of making sure you are clearly communicating no matter what situation you are in. So I really admire the fact that Nicole and her ex were really just community very clearly, right? Like they had freaking pizza and Google spreadsheets. You can do, I don't know, steak, <laughs> whatever it is that you want, and just walk through what both of you would like and not be afraid to have those tough conversations. And what I also really admired was that Nicole and assuming her ex really thought through their values and what it is that they really wanted out of their relationship post-divorce. And essentially for her, her lifestyle so that she could work backwards so that money isn't necessarily at the forefront of, of her decisions, right? Even though it is important. So I'm just going to plug my values-based spending guide again, beyondthedollar.co slash values if you're interested in starting to think about that in your financial life. And as always, let me know what you think of this episode. If you download the guide, let me know what you think. My email is hello at beyondthedollar.co. All right, until next time. Thank you so much for listening in on Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend. It'll help share the mission of what we're trying to do, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. So tag them on Instagram when I post up in the dollar or send them a link, whatever you want to do to spread the mission of what we're doing around here. Now, if you feel that putting money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, feel free to download the value space spending guide. So what it is, is you're gonna be able to gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, be able to name your most important values and how we can start putting money towards those things. So to download the value space spending guide, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. So thank you again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar. By the way, thank you to Donovan Durant again for providing this awesome theme song.